0: And you. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie. I'm Danielle. Oh my God. Those <laughs> intros just get worse and worse as the time wears on. They're my favorite. Can I just go, yo, yeah. what is up? Like, that's what I really, because that's how I greet every one of my other friends. So
1: do it because that is how you greet everyone. And that's also worked for MTV Raps for like a decade. So. <laughs>
0: Good to know I have something in common with the T V wraps. But what's going on with you today? How's it going?
1: Doing all right. I went for my, my annual exam this morning, which I feel like I know that doctors specialize. I kind of wish, I think that the, if there's ever a gyno who is also a general practitioner, like they're going to get all my money for the rest of my life because I'm sick of having to go to both and just like split it up.
0: Wait a minute. Okay, because I was going to say like, when I was in Atlanta, I had this doctor for a really long time that did both. And it was the, the opposite. Like, she was my primary care, but she was also a gyno. And then she kept, like, pressing the gyno issue. She'd be like, well, you know, if you want to get a pap smear, I do pap smears. And I was like, oh, cool. Good <laughs> to know. And then she would say it. Like, every time I would go in there, she'd be like, yo, by the way, if you need, I'm a gyno, too. And I'm like, okay. I, was, I didn't mean to tell her, like, I'm seeing someone. Like, it's right. cool. Like, I don't need the pap smear from you i just need all the other stuff
1: but i love this like hard sell car salesman approach
0: i'm fairly certain she's not listening to this podcast nor will and in fact i don't even know if she's practicing medicine but yo she was like a legendary freak um, no. <laughs> yeah so she was the like atlanta like she was the in-town doctor that took like no insurance so basically like it was like everybody's like doctor. If you were like in your twenties and you didn't have health insurance, she would see you. Okay. Nice. And I went and saw her for like a really long time. I actually did have insurance at one point. Like when I started working in my mid-20s, I had I actually had health insurance. So but I still went and saw her because I was yeah. like, yo, I've been seeing her since I was like 18. But she was a freak, man. She was like, she was a wild dresser. She I had love like it. wild clothes. She kind of had this like real um her attitude was she had like no bedside manner like for a doctor she had zero bedside manner and she was really blunt really like yo you need to do this like immediately like and it would create this like fear and then she would hard sell you on the gyno stuff and i was like yo no. legendary
1: freak that's not someone that you can have like between your freaking legs like that doing yeah, like I the was blunt like, i don't sell. need this
0: bluntness down there i need like i need somebody who's basically a borscht belt comedian. That's who I need to be. And and luckily I have found that woman now, my gyno. In LA is that woman, and she is the fucking greatest. I love her so much. But yeah, I couldn't take that attitude. Uh, But that's so funny that you mentioned that you want like an all in one. Because for the longest time, I had access to an all in one. I didn't use it. So,
1: and I've never heard of that. But now I'm thinking maybe I don't want an all in one for that exact reason. Because then you're constantly having to weigh which one you need. I'm just lazy enough to not want to drive to Cedars Sinai more than once a year. Is is really what it comes down to? Because it does not matter how many times I've been there. I have never gone to Cedars and been able to go directly to where I need to go without calling the office and being like, yo, I'm in the parking garage and I'm lost. I get more lost at Cedars than I do anywhere else on this planet.
0: Yo, Cedars is insane. And I I speak of this from fucking tons of experience because, you know, a few years ago when I was sick and I was at Cedars, I was there for like two and a half weeks or something. And it was basically like, yo, even... To this day, my parents were like, it was a fucking nightmare coming to see you. Like, <laughs> basically, like we didn't know where we were. Uh, we ended up parking at the mall and just walking over like we couldn't figure it out. So we went to the Beverly Center and just walked there. It was oh, a I mess. did that once
1: when I came to see you. I did that I was like, I don't know, because they would moved you out of like, I think it was like they moved you out of ICU into your room. Yeah. And I came to see you and I was like, all right, she's in this new room. It'll, it'll be easier because it's like an established building. And then I went and I'm looking I'm like listening to Google Maps and I'm trying to do that and I was like, I d I don't know I don't I'm just gonna park at the Beverly Center. Park at the Beverly Center. Walk to walk past Egg Slut, which is so disconcerting to walk past (laughs) (laughs) on your way to like see an ill friend. I'm like, can we keep keep the sluts tucked away for a minute? Not not to sex shame the egg. Not to sex shame the egg. But just sincerely. That's always been a curious name for business to me. But that's LA in a nutshell. Their businesses are fucking wild. They're wild. So I went. I finally fucking figured it out. But I was just like, oh, God, this place is so confusing always. And then I almost got in a fight at the elevators. Because as you know, I'm not a, a fading violet by any stretch. So people are in these streets, still trying to crowd into an elevator as if there's not a pandemic going on. Yeah. So I missed the first two, and now I'm like 10 minutes into my appointment time because I got lost in the garage, and now I'm waiting for an elevator. So when the next one came around four people started mobbing it and i was in you know front of the line so i went in and i just i held my hand up and i said i'm not standing in this elevator with more than three people and everyone kind of looked at me and then like two people kind of sheepishly got on
0: you're at a fucking hospital don't you we're know at- that we're not supposed to be doing this if, if anywhere
1: but here we're you at know hospital. i had to hold my hand up like a stopping guard and be like like a crossing guard and just be like i'm not doing this right now and i have an appointment can you please <laughs> like it was unreal. So I this so the lady kind of mean mugged me and I was like, I will box you in this fucking hospital. I. This is where I'm at. This is where I'm at. When I go out in public, you have to be ready to fight. And I hate it. I hate that feeling, but I'll do it.
0: The funny thing is, is that when you're there, though, it is true. There is like a fucking nice hospital. And it's like this has to be an L.A. thing. But like all the fucking Doctors
1: and nurses are hot. Oh my God. I could never get treated there in a long-term way. It's not fair. It's unfair. Your doctor was hot. All of my doctors.
0: Okay, first of all, I had like, (laughs) there was so many people in and out. I mean, listen,
1: I'm not going to, I
0: won't go into the entire story, but basically, you know, I had this like emergency surgery because I had like one of the most random things happen to me. It was basically like it an abscess that burst randomly in my body and didn't realize it had happened. Essentially this completely random medical event. And I had never been in the hospital before. And I, w- I had only been living in LA for a few years. And I was like, fuck, I guess I just got to go to Cedar sinai because it's the only thing that's like, I know that's in my neighborhood. Yeah. And then when I got there, I was like, okay, there's a lot of doctors and they're all totally hot in their own little separate ways, right? So there was like the main surgery guy. He was kind of this like middle, really fit, middle-aged man. It looks like he was like ultra marathoner, super duper fucking healthy men's health magazine guy, hot as shit. Then there was like a young kind of like bearded sort of sensitive indie rock, maybe like a Sufjan Stevens <laughs> type hot. There was a... Uh Jewish lesbian who was super <laughs> duper hot. She was like, su- like she had this kind of like crossing Delancey-ish or Amy yes. Irving look to her and I was like, hot as shit. Then there was like a young Asian woman. So it was like, everybody was hot. Everyone. And I'm like going, man, y'all are seeing me literally at my worst and I don't really know how to feel like. i like, you're like,
1: I am the game of operation right now, basically. (laughs) And you are just seeing me here with my little bowl cut, just doing my thing on the table. It is disconcerting. My gyno is hot. Like, it's just, it's it's disconcerting.
0: Is it a woman or a man? It's a woman. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But it's just like, that's just, I think part of how you get hired there. I don't know. Maybe it's an LA thing. Have you ever had a man gyno? No. Yeah. I, you know, I think I'm a pretty open-minded person. I, I say gyno
0: Sorry. I, I, I <laughs> what I the t- hell's t- wrong with me? I meant male gyno. Continue. I like man gyno. Mangino. Sounds, sounds like, like, a, a, <laughs> like a rare dinosaur breed. <laughs> well, when we did the dig, um <laughs> we came across one of the only man gyno fossils ever found.
1: <laughs> <Man-gyno, anyway. laughs> i wouldn't i wouldn't have a man guy no i don't know i don't know i feel like it's you know i've never even i haven't interrogated it so i'm gonna think about it but right now my feeling is no <laughs> <laughs> no no but one thing that's cool is I've, i think i feel like we've been alive long enough now to see changes in gynecology which i never thought would happen i thought like by the time i was in there and starting this journey they just figured everything out but one thing that's great is and this has been happening for a few years now they now ask if you're experiencing intimate partner violence which i think is so smart that's the only time that some people have where they're alone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like where they don't have their partner possibly breathing down their neck if they are experiencing that. So I really love when they ask that. I always get a real big kick out of my Gino asking me if if I want an STI check, and you know usually I'll say yeah just because it's like a baseline. But she also knows that I have not boned in ages, so we just both. (laughs) That's where the borscht belt of it comes in, where I agree with you because like we. She's like, do you want an STI check? Blah blah. (laughs) Like we both start laughing, (laughs) (laughs) and I love it. But the breast exam has changed. They don't recommend yeah. that you do it at home anymore.
0: Yeah, I asked about that too. The last time I was in there, I was basically like, "Oh, so we're not." I mean, I, th- I was like, "Is this like a TSS situation where everything that we learned in the '80s about women's health is just wrong?" Like, yeah. I'm like, "Oh, there's there's no TSS. We're no longer checking in the shower. You don't even have to get Paps every year unless you have an abnormal Pap or something. It's like you get them every three years now. Yes. It's crazy.
1: It's wild. So that was that's always." Very interesting to me to kind of say, all right, well, let's see what's going to be new the next time I come in. And this time it was great because it was just very quick. The The stirrups have changed like the stirrups are not those like um, clanky metal ones anymore. They have like socks on them now.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's
1: just cedars. But it was very it was a very Probably. comforting situation. And I realized at that appointment that I don't have any normal socks since I've lived here for a few years and I wear Birkenstocks most of the time. I, You know, I just don't wear socks pretty much all year round. So I have like two or three pairs of thick wool socks that I wear when I go back east to visit during the winter. And then the only other socks I have are gift socks. So like Sarah will send me socks for Christmas or something. And so I'm in the stirrups and I scoot down and, you know, my doc's chatting with me and I just kind of glanced at my foot and noticed it said on one foot, it said, fuck you. And on the other foot, it said, you fancy bitch. (laughs) And I was like, oh, damn, like, I need to get my adult sock game in order. This is not okay for her face to be so close to this rude sock.
0: I'll give you a little tip from somebody that has to go to hospitals once in a while, (laughs) because now I have to get MRIs every four months. Super fun. I would stash a pair of those, like, You know how, like, Pilates socks have those, like, grippy things on the bottom? Just go buy some at Target or something and just put them in your bag. That way you have them for literally any situation. It doesn't even have to be going to the doctor or going to the hospital. It could just be like, I'm at my friend's house and, yeah, I have to take my shoes off because, you know, they're uptight or something like that.
1: (laughs) I don't want (laughs) to walk around (laughs) in bare feet. Or oh, like, oh, look, I'm in the park and I have to, like, parkour off that tree put on my slippy socks
0: yeah put on those like little grippy socks uh i stash them in my bag in fact usually at cedars uh they probably do this in other places too but they give you grippy socks to wear but i don't like wearing them because it's uh too painful man and they're ugly as fuck (laughs) they're 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 ugly as fuck (laughs) i'd rather pick my own you know what I mean?
1: That's a smart idea, though. I'm going to keep some in my glove compartment because I don't carry a bag anymore. So I'm just going to keep it well, in my car. Well, put it, a,
0: put a, stuff it down in the front of your pants. As uh, you do. And then, you know, it'll save you the indignity of wearing a fuck you, you fancy bitch um, <laughs> pair of socks in so- the
1: stirrups. You know me, and I'm not easily embarrassed. I wanted to crawl under that table. I was like, <laughs> oh, God, Danielle, like, you leave the house once a month and this is how you act? <laughs> I think not right. that's
0: I think they've maybe seen worse. Uh, ho- hopefully they have. <laughs> it ain't right. The real question, though, I must ask you, since you did visit Cedars, is did you get that cookie?
1: You know, I got that fucking cookie. Did you get the cookie cookie, though? I got the chocolate chip one. Did you get the one that was in the pan? Yes, because I went down the building I was in, had the coffee bean in it. And then if you walked over, it was one with the Starbucks in it. This is the most L.A. conversation I think I've ever had. I'm
0: sorry. I had to talk about the cookie. No, it's great. (laughs) So
1: I went went to the other building intentionally because I went and I'm like, oh, I'm outside. I've got I was wearing three masks. P.S. I had my own surgical mask and then I had my regular Aranum mask over it. And then when I got there, they're like, and we need you to put this over one of those. And I'm like, if I take either of these off, I'm not feeling as protected. So I just put it on over the two. So I had three masks on like a fucking maniac. And I'm just like, <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm out. I'm out here in these streets. Like, I was just like, <laughs> I'm doing it. <laughs> so, I went to the coffee bean because nobody has made me coffee in months. Like I might, I, I just do it all myself at home all the time. Yeah. Um, so I went and got some goddamn espresso because I don't have espresso at home. And then I went over to the other building. I got the cookie.
0: You know, it's funny because first of all, I won't, I've talked about this on another podcast, so I probably won't tell the actual cookie story, but. That Cedar's cookie is some is totally incredible. And I'm jealous you went to a coffee bean because I love the ice. Yeah. And the, the coffee bean ice, that, that little crushed, cru- the cr- yeah. crunchy pellets.
1: Ah! Yeah. <laughs> that was like the highlight of my month. It takes so little now. But I also feel like you should tell the cookie story. Even if people have heard it before, it's a good story.
0: Okay, they may not have they may not have, but I'll I'll tell it anyway. When I was in I was an inpatient at Cedar's they give you food. <laughs> if you're allowed to eat, um, so they give, give you monsters, food. And what what will happen is, is that they call down to your hospital room and say, like, what do you want for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? And so it's always kind of like a random selection of crap. Like, and they always kind of over give you food, which I love because um, they're just like, well, you can get eggs and bacon and we'll also give you applesauce and, you know, hash browns and, you know, and I'm just like, oh, okay. If it's, Free, although it's not free because you fucking pay out the ass for health care. But uh, I was like, I'll take it. And then my coworker Liz, who lives in LA and has had two children at Cedars, was basically like, she she asked me how I was doing, and I was like, yeah, I'm still still in the joint. And she was like, did you get that cookie? And I was like, what? And she was like, there's a chocolate chip cookie that they serve only at Cedars, and it's the greatest cookie I've ever had in my life. And I was like. OK, so when when the, the call came the next day, I realized you could get the cookie for lunch and dinner. So I was like, fuck it. I'll get it for both meals. I don't even know if I can eat this. I don't know what's going on with me medically. I just had a random health event. <laughs> can it I eat been, a cookie right
1: now? <laughs> it could have been caused by chocolate. You don't know.
0: <laughs> you know. Yeah, I could have a chocolate chip cookie stuck in my abdomen right now. I have no idea. So I ordered it. And when I tell you this cookie was good, I don't think it really truly captures how good this cookie was. First of all, it was baked in a fucking cast iron lodge pan. Mm -hmm. It came in like a fluted thing and it was so unbelievably good that I just was like, I have to get like two of these for every meal. Like, can you get it? Can I get out of breakfast? And I just kept thinking to myself, like, I don't know if I can eat this right now, but I'm eating. I'm double timing. Like, I yep. don't give a shit. And then when I left my coworker, you know, she was like, so how was it? And I was like, oh, man, that cookie is incredible. She's like, guess what? You'll never have that cookie again unless you're an inpatient at Cedars. And I was like, wait, they don't even sell it like at their gift shop, or like, and they're like, she's like, oh, hell no, this is for the patients. That's like, you'll know. Ne- so if you want that cookie again, you're gonna have to check yourself back into the hospital <laughs> and get that cookie. And I was
1: like, no, I went to the other building and they have a, cafe- a staff cafeteria. Nobody's asking questions. Go in there. Ooh,
0: ooh, good tip. That's a good tip.
1: They have a cash register. It's not like you pay with your badge or something. So you just go in and say, give me a cookie and you leave.
0: Okay, because see, here's the thing I've tried every single avenue that i i could possibly do to get that cookie outside of being in that hospital because i was basically like come on this is la i'm sure like fucking barbara streisand can just call up and get the cookie delivered they take it out the back of the cafeteria and bring it to her right no i can't i can't get this cookie and then i was literally scheming like i was literally like okay what if i can i gold belly this (laughs) i don't what if i like Cut the tip of a finger off just to be able to go back in there. I'm like, I don't want to do anything crazy because, by the way, hospitals suck and I don't want to right. go back to them ever, which is why I don't fucking fuck with COVID. Well, look,
1: you just have to be willing to do a little crime <laughs> and you can have that cookie. But now I'm also thinking maybe I didn't have maybe I just had a good cookie and it wasn't that cookie. Well, see, now it's hard it to was say. fresh baked. It was fresh baked. And I'm like, oh, this has to be the cookie. It's hard to say
0: because I have heard, like... I've had this cookie. It's super incredible, but i I seriously am like, I can't imagine that they would not serve this to guests, to yes. families visiting, to people who are just eating in the cafeteria, to the other doctors. They have to let this cookie into the world. So maybe they have made it over the counter, and you can get it. So you might have had it.
1: It was delicious. Whatever I had was gu- it was perfect texture and and like the crispy, a little bit of a crisp on the outside, a nice little soft chewy inside. It was delicious. It was like the perfect amount of chocolate chips, and it was fresh baked.
0: All right, you know what you have to do.
1: I'm going back to get that cookie. You I have to go back, <laughs> sneak
0: back in to the staff area, and get me
1: like ten of these shit and it wasn't hard because it's not even an area it's just like it's just like a regular like cafeteria you can just go in there i'm gonna go get one i'm gonna go get lost in the garage i'll look it'll take me five minutes to get the cookie it'll take me an hour and a half to get it in real time <laughs> so i will i will pay you for your time play i will pay you for the hassle
0: of having to find where out where you are to find this goddamn cafeteria i will pay for shipping i will pay for mileage time and labor
1: You don't even need to pay for it. You just need to like let me drop a pin so you can like hop on the Google map and be like, all right, here's where you are. (laughs) I will guide you out of here. You gotta send me like ten. I'm gonna send them to you. And then you're gonna be like, guess what? This is just a cafeteria chocolate chip cookie. You got played. (laughs) I'll say, I did crime
0: for this. (laughs) I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I was on fentanyl (laughs) when I was on the hospital. So I could have (laughs) been I could have been fucking so batshit out of my mind that I thought this cookie was the greatest. But I actually think it is. I actually think it is. I'll just say that. So. They,
1: I will say this, though, also. They have good food at Cedars. <laughs> like They have pretty good food there in general. So also, this is the kind of hospital where, like, there's probably an endowment from Rita Wilson and Tom Hanks to like have the cookies handmade in a kitchen somewhere. Like they, it's a Tom Hanks, Rita Wilson memorial chocolate chip cookie kitchen. Like there's something like that going on there.
0: Oh yeah, there's a there's a Steven Spielberg wing of the hospital. I think there's a Barbara Streisand wing. Mm-hmm. Basically, the staff of ER is your doctors. Like Noah Wiley and George Clooney do come into your room and check in on you, check your vitals.
1: I was in the elevator with Emma Roberts. <laughs> very nice matching maroon (laughs) face mask (laughs) with her like long flowy dress and i'm like all right we're going we're both going up to the gyno what's up wait were you really her partner's very kind let me out first even though i'm like great this might cause problems for you at home but i'm taking it reparations motherfuckers bye Yeah, it was it's a weird place. I also went to um, an orthodontist appointment this week and they did something called power threading where they're now closing gaps and shit. But it's the same thing where my my orthodontist is in Beverly Hills and I have to valet park at my fucking dentist, basically. And he's gorgeous. And I can't stand it. And I'm like, just fix the graveyard that is my mouth. Just fix the fucking tombstones. He's always <laughs> very nice to me. He's very funny. Always like, you know, like a little hand on the shoulder when he leaves. Like, hey, see you next time. And I'm like, don't touch me. Like, <gasps> not because it's bad, because it's too good. Like, don't be gorgeous and touch me right now, please. Thank you.
0: I swear to God. L.A. has the hottest doctors I've ever seen in my life. But it's so funny that you noticed the <laughs> the labyrinth that is cedars because i always thought i'm the only person getting uptight about this but.
1: no i get very panicked when i feel trapped naturally and it's the kind of place where i feel like i might not ever get out of here and people will give you confidently give you directions and the minute i turn around i'm like i don't know what you just said because it's like go down this hallway to the west wing and then go cross cross to the 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 parking garage e and then you go up three levels and go up to the street access and i'm like what the shit dude what is going yeah it's it's not just you i don't know how anyone gets through anything there unless you have to go there every day
0: well that's why they have the cookie is to basically say we apologize for this bullshit
1: yeah that's why they have restaurants like a full restaurant it's like a wolfgang pucks in there probably like they just have full restaurants because people are just lost and they're like i need sustenance to get (laughs) through the next five hours of looking for my fucking car
0: it's so insane and had the best art that i've they have literally the greatest art. Ever. Like their art collection is unbelievable. It's stunning.
1: And LACMA's right down the street. It's stunning to go in Cedars and look at their artwork. It is wild.
0: Yeah, it's awesome.
1: How about, uh, instead of talking about my horrible sense of direction, we get into something I, I do know about, which is these movies.
0: Yeah. So let's uh we're continuing now. This is the third week of our Black History Month celebration. And this is gonna be a good episode because I um these are pretty recent films for us. And honestly, I don't think you and I have ever like explicitly told ourselves, hey, we're not gonna talk about recent movies, but I just think there's just so many other podcasts that are discussing new movies and Honestly, I think we are fans of older stuff and there's so many to talk about, but I did have fun talking about newer movies, knowing that like, this might be a one and done scenario, except if maybe like Keanu Reeves made a movie about like falling in love with two women who host a film podcast. Like maybe we talk about that
1: new movie, but other than that, I feel like we'd be obligated in some sense. And also he would do that movie. Come on. He's (laughs) Keanu Someone write it. You write write it. it. I'll write it. I'm going to call my agent right after this and be like, guess what? Change of direction. Movie for Keanu Reeves where he falls in love with me and my friend Millie.
0: (laughs) Write a movie for us and force Keanu Reeves to be in it. That's
1: Look, if Ali Wong can do it, we can do it. <laughs> exactly. Let's use this power or let's use your power. I have that. But even even if this is the only, like if, if this is a one and done, like current movie situation, I think we're, we're doing great options.
0: Yeah. There's a lot film. There's a lot of movies that were made. Don't you know? But let's talk about the theme then for this week.
1: Yeah. Do you want to tell them and then I'll get into some background. What's our theme?
0: So the theme for this week is called. British Steve McQueen is the real king of cool.
1: That is right. We will also refer to American Steve McQueen by his nationality. This is not a singling out, but we need to know who we're talking about here when we're talking about the real king of cool.
0: (laughs) Well, and that's the funny thing too, is that like so much has been said about the American Steve McQueen that we felt like making that distinction that we're talking about the other guy and whatever. No shade to American Steve McQueen. White Steve McQueen, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> um, but, you know, he is one of those types that, you know, I think people have talked about and do talk about as being, you know, he is called the King of Cool, right? Like, that's his right. his nickname. And I'm guilty of this, too. I remember when people would be like, hey, the new Steve McQueen movie's out, and I'd be like, what? There's like a new anim- Steve McQueen movie out? He's <laughs> animated corpse? And I'd be like, no, dummy. <laughs> the other one. So They got holograms? <laughs> yeah. He's like... In a movie with, like, Emma Roberts and <laughs> Timothy Chalamet? What? <laughs> That'd be horrifying, I, by the way. Don't do that,
1: Hollywood. Would He'd be their granddad. It would be terrible. Uh, <laughs> but this Steve McQueen, our British Steve McQueen, our real king of cool, has just had such a hold on me since I started watching his films. Like, I just love him as a filmmaker. And I think that he's... He does really kind of cool thematic movies that are built around emotions and that are built around look and feel like it's a very he makes very visceral movies to me um, for better and for worse, as we're going to get into here. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just really adore him. And again, much like the (laughs) the preemptive message I gave with Steve King I don't know if he's popping off on Twitter I sincerely doubt he is but I don't know if Steve McQueen has said some problematic shit since we've recorded this I don't know but (laughs) as of this moment and as of this recording I adore this dude and let's get just a little background on him because I think it's it's kind of fascinating I've read so much about him and there are a few things that really just stood out that I think people probably should know if they don't already but first of all Sir Stephen Rodney McQueen was born in London to Grenadian and Trinidadian parents. Um, he's 51. He lives in Amsterdam with his partner and their two children. And I love there's this interview that <laughs> that I'm going to reference quite a lot in this synopsis of his life. But he did an interview with The Guardian and the writer Decca Aitkenhead. And... He said that he lives in Amsterdam because no one comes here. So I'm never bothered. Like, he's just so salty. I love it. He's like, oh, yeah, the schools are great for my kids and no one bothers me. (laughs) And also, I think his partner is Dutch as well. So that probably plays into it. And I'm sure that you know him. Uh, Some of you, he's he's the star of a very popular gif where he fake claps his hands together at the Oscars. I don't know if you remember. Do you remember that? When he did that, Millie? I don't, actually. <gasps> look up that gift right now. Someone put it in the chat.
0: <laughs> I want to see it.
1: Now, I, maybe I have and I
0: just didn't know it was him. How did I not know well, this? I'm going to
1: give the backstory while we look for it, because okay. the story is this is when uh, 12 Years a Slave won Best Picture, Best Writing. It was released in 2013, won a bunch of awards in 2014. At the Academy Awards, apparently the story is that John Ridley, the screenwriter, had beef with Steve McQueen over screenwriting credit. So when Ridley won the award, he walked past Steve McQueen without acknowledging him. And then he also did not acknowledge him in his speech. So Steve McQueen goes on to do the fakest clap of all time. His hands <laughs> I'm are not watching even t- it right now. <laughs> like his hands are not touching. He does not look happy for this man at all. <laughs> he is just so salty. I love it. It's amazing, right? This is amazing. At the Academy Awards, this is like teenage high school level reaction. On the world stage. We'd love to see it. We'd love <laughs> to see it. So that is, I just, I think I think he's hilarious, unintentionally. Uh, he also, uh, he won his first Oscar with 12 Years a Slave, which won Best Picture in 2014 and also made history for that reason, because he's the first Black man to win Best Picture. And it was kind of a historic year in general, because that was also the year that Alfonso Cuaron won for Gravity for Best Director. So he's in it. He's in the mix. um, But he has he talks about a lot of the difficulties he had at school, because I think that and the reason I bring this up is that not only is it heart wrenching and brings you kind of closer into his life, even though he's not really a very um, he's not necessarily private, but he really only likes to talk about his work. You know, like he's very direct and focused in that way. But when I read this, it just kind of like it really tugged at my heart and explains a few things. So, essentially, in this Guardian article, he says, and the gar- and the article is called like um, Steve McQueen and his secret shame. He says, and I quote: By the age of thirteen, one class of academically gifted kids had been creamed off for special attention. Then there was three C one class for like okay normal kids, and then there was three C two for manual labor, more plumbers and builders stuff like that. McQueen was put in. 3C2. At first, he says mildly, I don't know why maybe I deserved to be and seems about to drop the subject. Moments later, he says, that inequality, I fucking loathe it with a passion. It's all bullshit, man. It really upsets me. And then to continue, and I know this is a long quote, but bear with me, (laughs) when he went back to present some achievement awards 15 years later, the new head of the school admitted to him that the school had been institutionally racist. Mm -hmm. This did not come as news to McQueen. Quote, it was horrible. It was disgusting. The system, it was absolutely disgusting. It's divisive. It was hurtful. It was awful. School was painful because... I just think that loads of people, so many beautiful people, didn't achieve what they could achieve because no one believed in them or gave them a chance or invested any time in them. A lot of beautiful boys, talented people were put by the wayside. School was scary for me because no one cared and I wasn't good at it because no one cared. At 13 years old, you are marked. You are dead. That's your future. So heart wrenching, right? Yeah, And it really explains to me, it explains a little bit about why so much of his filmmaking is about being evocative about real human emotion. Because he's clearly like a very deeply feeling person who has gone through some strife. And the other thing that he revealed in that article is that he was dyslexic and he thought it made him stupid. And he also had a lazy eye, so he had to wear a patch. And it just... It's heartbreaking to think of this kid, eye patch, dyslexia, being in a school full of institutional racism and also being creative and sensitive and trying to find their way in the world and express that. It just really broke me to pieces to read that. that. but yeah, he's, he he made his way through, thankfully. We're all better off for it. He made a bunch of short films and digital art throughout the 90s. Uh, he went to college for film. I think he made like he made like 13 short films overall, but about six of those he did in the 90s. He went to the Tisch School of the Arts in New York for a bit, but he didn't like it. And I found a quote that he gave to the BBC News. And he's, they're like, why didn't you like it? And he's like, well, they wouldn't let you throw a camera up in the air. Like he wanted to be like <laughs> super experimental and they were like, nah. So he didn't dig it. Well, he shouldn't
0: have went to Georgia State University where they let you <laughs> fucking do anything.
1: You can run just, over your camera with a car. <laughs>
0: they were like, this camera is literally the oldest camera ever made. We don't care if you put it on top of a pizza and try to eat it. it is, that's, <laughs> so he could have done it at GSU. I'll just say that.
1: Just pick it on time, school. Next time. Maybe he'll come back, you know, like after post-corona, you know, come <laughs> to Georgia, run over a film camera with your car. Um, he, he, in 1999, he won the Turner Prize, which is huge. And he won uh, 20,000 pounds. And that was for his for these film installations that he did, which are all really interesting. If you can look any of them up online, there's one called Bear that I really liked. And he's just a really fascinating filmmaker, even before he started making major films but his first motion picture was hunger and hunger is about the 1981 irish prison hunger strike like where bobby sands died and i read a book last year called say nothing about that time like the the troubles absolutely incredible like what people went through and the story of bobby sands is heartbreaking and this movie is a movie i saw I saw Hunger after the one that I'm going to talk about today because I love the one that I saw today so much that I'm like, I got to know. I got to know what the the other movies are like. But it premiered at at the Cannes Film Festival and he received, um, McQueen received the First Time Director Award. It also won a bunch of awards at like the Sydney Film Festival, Toronto International Film Festival, L.A. Film Critics Awards. It just won a ton of awards. He really like burst onto the scene, I think, in a a big way.
0: So Michael Fassbender was in that movie, right? Yeah. So... Is Michael Fassbender, would you say he was kind of like his muse? Because I think he's in like a lot of his films, right?
1: They work together a lot. They work together Mm -hmm. a lot. And I think they have a good working relationship because they're both, I don't know, they both seem kind of sensitive in the same way. And they Mm -hmm. both seem like they can kind of get to the heart of things in the same way. So I'm sure that McQueen likes working with an actor that he can count on like that. Yeah,
0: there's a reason why they work together so much. Yeah, yeah. There
1: is. And even with, with the film we're going to talk about today, which was his second film, um, Shame, which was released in 2010, I, I read something where I, I guess a, the casting director said that it was so hard to cast for that film and McQueen wanted like big names and there were so many people that were like "Uh, nope we're not doing that Uh, so yeah we're gonna get into shame but then the film he did after that in 2013 was 12 Years a Slave again won a bunch of awards this is when Lupita and Yango won for Best Supporting Actress won uh, like BAFTAs and and won the Golden Globe for Best Film again another really powerful movie that I haven't seen because I can't stand Slave Movies Mm -hmm. (laughs) but A slave movie in his hands might make me reconsider, and I really loved his next movie too. Twenty eighteen, he released *Widows*, which I think was underrated. Yeah, I saw that one. Yeah, and it was kind of it was based on this nineteen eighty three British TV series. He co wrote it with um, you know Gillian Flynn from you know she wrote *Gone Girl*. And I just I feel like it's underrated. There are some good performances in that movie. And it's an interesting premise.
0: Viola Davis, right? That she was really good in that. Yeah.
1: Viola Davis was awesome in that movie. And um, then he last year released a series of films under the Small Axe title, which we're going to talk about today as well. Yes, we are. He is just like he's prolific and interesting and just takes his time to tell such human stories and again I know we talked about this a couple weeks ago but he is another black filmmaker and black creator who refuses to be penned in by monolithic ideas about how to represent blackness in film and so he does it in a way that is so natural to him that it can't help but tell different stories like when we talk about small acts I think that's something that I really want to talk about a lot because the small acts films are just stunning and telling stories that I think a lot of us had never heard of or knew about but just represented a part of black culture that is so intentionally like he just treats it so intentionally beautifully and just really brings a lot of the life of the story out for me in those ways.
0: Yeah. He's definitely one of the best working filmmakers of the modern era, in my opinion. I just think he's super talented and, like you said, just really good at conveying emotion and character. And um, I'm super excited to talk about him. So I'm... Awesome. Jazz, we're doing this episode. Me too. So I guess you're
1: up first this week. I'm psyched to get into this movie because, (laughs) first of all, can you... (laughs) <laughs> Do you want to tell the party people about the text that you sent me today?
0: <laughs> yes, I'll I'll read it verbatim. The one that I sent to you because I was like, I don't even know. Uh, I said, you got me rewatching shame in my parents' house, which is pure evil.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much. I love it so much. Not intentional, but hey, take one for the team. <laughs> and I'm glad for it because holy cow, this is... A- one hell of a movie to watch even in your parents' vicinity. Yes. um, For sure. So Shame came out in 2011, directed by Steve McQueen, written by Steve McQueen and Abby Morgan, who also wrote The Iron Lady. Uh, She wrote The Iron Lady. Um, And the stars Michael Fassbender and Carrie Mulligan uh, also features Nicole Bahari. I'm trying to help you. How are you helping me?
0: huh? You come in here and you're a weight on me.
1: You're a burden You want to get out of here? I could take you somewhere. We're family. We're meant to look after each other. It premiered at the 68th annual Venice Film Festival. Uh, It has an NC-17 rating. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Roger Ebert gave it four stars, but he also said he wouldn't see it. He probably wouldn't see it twice. Like he loved it. (laughs) Truer
0: words. Have literally never been spoken. That's how I felt. Where I was like, "Man, this movie is fucking great," but I don't think I can ever watch it again until your friend makes you watch it for a film podcast you're doing together.
1: But this is also why I feel like I'm maybe on a watch list because I've rented it twice this year alone. (laughs) And I should just buy it because every couple of years I'm like, man, that movie's fucking great, and I just want to watch it again. <laughs> Guaranteed watch list. Oh gosh, but it's 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 great. So so Ebert, much like Millie, was just like excellent. Probably wouldn't put myself through this again unless it's for a podcast. <laughs> and then there was a there was a writer um, who was writing for Mubi. I'm going to try with this name Ignatie Vishnevetsky, uh, and they said. Every scene is ladled with big dollops of cinema's most respectable cop-out, ambiguity. Shame wears its emptiness like a badge of honor. McQueen is trying for banal blankness. And though he succeeds in that respect, you kind of wish that a filmmaker and one with a background as an artist at that would aspire to do more than just say nothing. And I could not disagree with this review more. (laughs) And we'll get into that. Um, Oh, the other cool thing, Stephen McQueen was a war artist. He went to Iraq.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) That's interesting.
1: Um, So the synopsis of this film is Brandon Sullivan, played by Michael Fassbender, is this New York executive who also happens to be a sex addict. And when his sister, Sissy, comes to town, what happens? That's right. All hell breaks loose. So (laughs) like
0: every movie we ever talk about, all all hell
1: breaks loose. And what's wild is that like so this is a film that has been deeply praised for its reflection of sex addiction, which is something that's mostly made fun of in our culture. Like people are kind of like, "Sex? how can you be addicted to sex? And I think what's wonderful about this film is it's not glorified and it's deeply unsexy the way that McQueen shows this addiction to sex and this compu- and it's like a compulsion. And I also think that that Fassbender was perfect for this role for that reason, because he's equal parts hot and creepy. <laughs> right. Like he kind of. I don't know, like there's something about him that you can feel in certain ways that he moves his face and in certain movements that he makes where you're like, oh, damn, he could murder me. Like he's a little creepy, but also pretty fucking hot. This movie did make me wonder, does our podcast need to come with a disclaimer about how we keep subconsciously picking movies with full frontal?
0: (laughs) Is this I I thought this is why (laughs) he picked
1: it. No, I'm kidding. But this is like out the gate, like the first thing you see. Aside from him, kind of sprawled out in bed, and this really beautiful shot, actually, um, is him just walking around his house, just naked, just wings a flying. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe think a little bit more deeply about us.
0: The one thing that I did notice about <laughs> this tendency of him walking around naked in his is that he lives in one of those apartments with no window coverings on in yes. a high rise, which I call sexy living, where you're like. In a city and you don't have like shades or drapes or anything. And you're just kind of like, I'm so hot and successful. I'm walking around, naked, living my life with no fucking privacy. I want you to see it. And I'm completely. just like, completely.
1: guys. A, it's such an exhibitionist approach to life that I do not have. I'm the exact opposite. I'm like, give me those like thick Victorian drapes. Yes. I want to put drapes over every reflective surface like get them on the microwave I want drapes on my oven
0: It's like when you watch episodes of The Crown and you see like a one person coming in and opening these heavy ass fucking queen drapes and I'm like that's how I live I can't live sexy in the air like that that's just too crazy to me
1: (laughs) Okay, I can't live sexy in the air like that is the title of this fucking episode (laughs) for sure. Sexy in midair is it. (laughs) Oh, gosh. But I know what you mean. And it freaks me out. Every time I live in a city and I see those buildings, I do wonder who lives there. And is it the Brandon Sullivan sex addict? (laughs) It's like, I don't understand. Yeah, I think it's that's what made his character
0: creepy I think when you're what it's because you're like oh here's this like rich executive guy he's I don't know if he's like a tech bro I can't figure like what he does for a living and you know his life is very like designy sterile like you know his apartment is open it's very you know kind of like almost like Scandinavian, very sparse. And I'm just sort of like, wow, that is such a way to live.
1: You know, like, I'm yeah. just like, that's so weird to me. Like, And there's like a cool blue hue over everything. So it makes it seem icy and cold even more so than it is. And there are parts of this movie where there, there's shouting matches happening in the apartment, but you can't hear from the outside, which seems... Again, like this is where I'm sometimes able, unable to suspend disbelief because I'm like, there's no apartment in New York where you can't hear your neighbor fart. And then I realized, (laughs) well, if you're rich, you probably don't have to listen to your neighbor's fart. Like these are those sexy buildings. (laughs) This is sexy living and you don't have to hear your neighbor showers. Um, Or, oh, God, I lived in an apartment in Harlem once where it had one of those like air vents across the apartments. And or like an alley kind of air vent thing going on. And my neighbor's bathroom was right next to my bedroom window. And I don't know what was happening, but there was a 20 minute kind of an excision of mucus every (gasps) morning. Oh my God. And I didn't know how to live after that for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Like to wake up to that sound every day for a couple of years really did something to me.
0: Too intimate. Yeah, I hear you.
1: Way too intimate. So he's doing the sexy living. And he really, I I feel like the opening scene of this movie is so important, not just for setting the tone, but for understanding this character. And in the opening scene, he's on the subway, sees a woman sitting in a street in a seat across from him. He's looking at her. It's kind of flirtatiously. She's engaging. They're smiling. But the camera holds on the both of them as you realize his intensity and his relentlessness is creeping her out and then she stands up and he stands up behind her and puts his hand next to hers where you can visibly see her rings her engagement rings or wedding rings uh, and then he follows her off the train loses her in the crowd but i was kind of left feeling like holy shit this is part of the compulsive element of sex addiction where he literally cannot stop himself yeah And this woman was giving all the signals of like, I am uncomfortable now. Like this, this was flirty and cute for a minute. Now I'm freaked out. And he couldn't control it. And it was really, again, like a a silent scene. It's just so fascinating, just silent scene that just kind of really undercut to me the very meaning of like who we're dealing with here. Uh, Because right after that, he goes to work and he jerks off in the bathroom. (laughs) And it's like he really can't stop it like he just it's just not the act of physical sex it's thinking about sex and looking at you know objects of desire and having to jerk off at work and like just really it was very compounded for me and there's a there's a point where he goes on a date with a coworker, marianne that's nicole bahari and as they're standing at the subway at the end of the date there's an ad for like a strip club hanging between them at the subway entrance so you kind of also get this feeling that like sex is everywhere, which we all know, (laughs) like we all live in this, in this culture. Mm -hmm. Um, But what is it like when sex is everywhere and you're a sex addict? What is that like? So it's just something very, I don't know, there's something very sad, immediately sad about this character to me. And, you know, there's the kind of expected thing of, you know, he, he has a hard time forming like sustainable relationships with people. And sustainable connections with people, including his sister, Sissy, who we are going to get to in a moment, um, has a startlingly confusing relationship with her that is chock full of boundary issues. (laughs) They are so naked around each other, but he can't connect to himself, I think is kind of also what's happening. Like, I don't see a lot of introspection going on there. Um, And he's almost fueled by such this, like this animalistic kind of urge. And then you see him interacting with people and like, you can see the mask that he has to put on to get through the day. But yeah, it's just, again, very, very interesting. I like little details about this movie. Like the fact that um, the music, he listens to a lot of classical music and one of the songs he listens to the most, one of the pieces he listens to the most is Bach's, uh, Aria DiCapo, Capo, which is the same music that Hannibal Lecter listens to. <laughs> mm,
0: funny how that works out sometimes.
1: <laughs> same piece. So, yeah, so Sissy, his sister, calls and is like trying to get to him. He's instantly ignoring he's ignoring her in the beginning of the film like she leaves messages and then she just shows up and he's like what are you fucking doing here she's like i tried to call you and tell you i was coming but one thing that i thought was cool about this uh character because it's not just about him is that i read an interview with a psychologist or a comment from a psychologist who said that this character had borderline personality disorder and according to the Mayo Clinic, it's a mental health disorder and it impacts the way you think and feel about yourself and others. It causes problems functioning in everyday life. It includes self-image issues, difficulty managing emotions and behavior, and a pattern of unstable relationships is usually involved. So once that psychologist kind of put that out there and I was watching this film, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense because this, this character is a mess in a lot of ways. And emotionally unable to connect in the same way as her brother, but the damage is clearly different. One of the first scenes we see with, with Sissy uh, who's played by Carrie Mulligan, who's just again, kind of, a really fantastic actress that is underrated in my world. (laughs) Like, I don't think she's underrated by the world, um, but I've really enjoyed a lot of the stuff I've seen her in. And the first scene we see with this character, Sissy is her like pleading on the phone with a partner, like with her boyfriend to like, you know, please don't leave her. And it's just so heartbreaking, so sad. And her brother's listening to this and like, he can't comfort her. Um, It's just, it's very strange, very strange. And, she does say something towards the end of the film that clarifies a couple of things. She she leaves him a voicemail and says, you know, we're not bad people. We just come from a bad place. Because the other interesting thing about this film to me is that they never go back to the start to talk about how this began.
0: Right. For yeah. Brandon
1: or like what exactly is going on with Sissy. It's all about the present. So when you hear something like that, you know, we're not bad people. We just come from a bad place. You Like, that just floored me the first time I heard it. Like, what is going on here? (laughs) Because they have a very strange relationship. When he comes home one night and she's actually in his apartment taking a shower she just shows up unannounced and he goes into the bathroom thinking it's like someone's broken in and he's getting ready to bash in the head of whoever's there. And it's his sister. And she's just standing there in front of him, fully naked, like not reaching for a towel, not trying to get <laughs> like, she's not ashamed. She's not you know yelling. She's just fully comfortable being buck as naked in front of her brother, her adult brother. <laughs> and then there's another scene uh, in the film where he kind of returns it, where he gets a little bit, upset with her when she busts in on him masturbating in the bathroom. But then he comes out and is like fully naked and like straddling her and yelling at her. And it is just such a violent and angry relationship on his part, and so confusing and sad and traumatic from her part. So I just, yeah, I don't know what you think about that, yeah, it but it's kinda, just,
0: it kind of goes beyond because a lot of times when I see this kind of thing, I mean, we, ta- we kind of talked about this in the, uh, foot cigarettes, uh, episode when we talked about like me without you, you know, I did not come from a naked household, so I don't know what it's like to like, sort of just walk around naked in front of my family members. I, we do not do that. Um, no. but it, it, I realized that I did not grow up like other people grew up. But I think there's something different going on. And, and maybe that there is an ambiguity in the movie with that, that I would have maybe liked to have heard about. But also, I got to say, like, the fact that they don't talk about it is it's the provocative. It makes people think like, what is the deal here? And that's an interesting way to watch a movie. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, to not have the full, all the puzzle pieces.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure.
1: Because you do get from him on that date that he goes on with, with Marianne, you get the, he does give a little bit about his background. You know, he's, he's lived in Ireland, came here as a teen, you know, family settled in New Jersey, but that's it. That's it. So what happened in Ireland? What happened here? Like, you just don't know.
0: Well, and also too, just the sort of like dichotomy of, of these two characters being that it's just almost like if we're talking about a guy who is promiscuous sort of sexually and he keeps a lot to himself. The sister is almost the complete opposite. She's like, I don't even know if this is a term, but emotionally promiscuous. Like she's very much like all the way up, all the way out there. She's almost like too emotional if that's a way to think about it. But it's that thing where you're like, you put these two people together and She And she's constantly accusing him of being just sort of, you know, a blank slate, like unable to show emotion towards her. But she's so emotional and you kind of wonder, like, how did that come from the same family? What, What was that like for them? But ultimately, I think that she is disruptive to his life for not just so he can have his addiction, but it's also that. He, I think, feels some level of responsibility for her. And he she's kind of like a moral center if he has one at all. Right. And the fact that she's in his life means that he has to think about his actions and he has to think about like what he does and who he is. And I don't
1: think he wants to. You know what I mean? Exactly. He wants to live in his ice cold little box and check out. And that's what works for him. It's not a life, but it's what works for him and passes as a life for him. And there are just like there there are moments in this movie that I think really, I don't know, that kind of exacerbate that feeling because there is a point in this movie where it gets dark, like it goes real dark and does not come back from the dark. <laughs> it stay, goes dark, stays dark, it goes into the cave. But before that, there are moments where, you know, and again, like to kind of re- refer back to that that movie critic who didn't. Like the quietness of this film, I kind of appreciated that subtlety, um, which is probably why I've watched it more than once. Because you know, there's there's things like this beautiful scene of Brandon running down this avenue, and he's barely looking at oncoming traffic as he crosses the street, and he's you know trucks are exiting from the post office, and it's kind of a like a there's a recklessness to his life, even though he presents himself as very controlled. He feels very reckless in those moments. And I think that's the subtlety, you know, that that you get from McQueen. <laughs> you know, that you don't have to say everything and spell everything out if you're looking for moments like that.
0: Yeah. Well, I I got to tell you, like this, I did not, I saw this movie when it came out. And like much like Roger Ebert, I was like, yeah, uh, that was a lot. I mean, that was a <laughs> lot in a way that I was like, God, I felt fucking like... It was just and it's a testament to how good this movie is where you're like, man, that's so intense and so uh, gut wrenching. I can't watch it again. But then, yeah, I had to watch it again and watch it my parents house. But at the same time, there was that scene of Sissy and Brandon fighting on the couch and they're kind of yelling at each other and they're super close to each other's faces. Like the two actors, Carey Mulligan and and Michael Fassbender are very close to each other's face. And they're basically like having like a big fuck you argument to each other. And that scene was so fucking good to me. Like I was just watching it again going, man, like these are two great actors. This is a great film. And then it lingers on, it, it basically holds that really tight shot of the two of them. Mm-hmm. And then when it's over, I think he gets up and then Carrie Mulligan kind of turns her face and you can just see like a tear that had fallen down. And I was like, wow, that's such a that's such a great moment. I mean, it's a hard moment because you're watching two people fight. But at the same time, like as a movie, I'm like, man, this is a great movie.
1: Absolutely. Well, yeah, like those the, the, those tender parts of these characters that. Only peak the surface a little bit, and they go right back down. Like, cause he does the same thing in, the, in a scene where he's watching her sing. You know, he just has one tear that he's able to let fall down his face, and then he locks it back up again. And I agree completely. There, there was I have to tell, I have to tell you that there was a day right around Christmas. Yeah, you know, like I guess it was around the holidays. I don't know why. I don't know why, and I kind of regret it. In one day, I watched Shame, The Hours. And because I'd never seen it, Breaking the Waves. Wow. It was the most morose day of my life. <laughs> wow. I, yeah, that's quite, like a, quite a triple you got there. <laughs> I felt like one. And by the end, I was like, I, I got to watch cartoons or something. I don't know what to do. Here. <laughs> but I love this film. And even though you had to watch it at your parents' house, d- did you feel like it was worth watching it again? Or
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, this, this is the thing that I always catch myself doing and then I immediately think, why did I think that ever? Which is that I only should watch movies once, you know? And I actually do not believe that. In my general life, I totally believe in watching movies over and over and over again, especially at different points of your life. If you haven't seen a movie since you were a kid, watch it again. It doesn't matter what it is. But yeah, this was a movie where I thought, yeah, I don't know if I can see it again. And I told myself I probably wouldn't. But then when I did, I was like, why did I ever think that? Because this movie is so great, considering that it was NC-17. And um, I think it still managed to, like, be seen by a lot of people. Yeah. You know, I think that as a filmmaker, it really kind of put him on the map in a different way. Like, it really made him. I mean, he was really doing, like, very. I mean, he, he made, like, this incredible art film. That's in line with like other kind of storied NC seventeen ish type of films, you know, because you know when they get to an NC seventeen rating, you're like, ooh, what's going on here? You know, exactly. what I mean? so. <laughs> It's so good. and I think it's so effective at what it's trying to tell. And in a weird way, I don't think this is a spoiler, by the way. There's no resolution or there's you're you're kind of left going like, what happens next? Mm-hmm. is so interesting.
1: Agree, agree, agree. Oh,
0: that makes me happy. Yeah. yeah, no i'm I'm glad you picked it despite the fact that I was like, I can't be watching this um three way right now with my mother in the other room watching a cbs sitcom and my dad like snoring i just it feels patently
1: (laughs) fucked up that that does feel kind of wrong but that's what headphones are for
0: i guess at the end of the day exactly
1: exactly i also think that it's We've picked movies in, in the Steve McQueen oeuvre <laughs> that are at different ends of the spectrum. <laughs> totally. So, I am like, let's give some ads and then we can talk about your film. Millie, mm-hmm. tell us what your Steve McQueen pick is.
0: I will. My movie for the theme of British Steve McQueen is The Real King of Cool. Is a movie from 2020. It's called Lover's Rock, directed by Steve McQueen.
1: The story spoke to me because it's sort of in my soul, that music um, growing up, um, hearing that music as a, as a young child. Um, you know, when you're a certain height and the radio is, is above you or, you know, smells and food and, you know, it's one of those things which is sort of, you know, ingrained in me as a Londoner. Um, and it's something which needed to be spoken about, really, because it's sort of a history that could get lost. I wanted to put it on film.
0: So that was Steve McQueen. Just a little bit of an interview from him talking about our movie today. So this film is part of an anthology film series that was made by Steve McQueen. And it's called Small Axe, like we talked about before. The name Small Axe comes from a Bob Marley song, which is obviously um, reggae is a big part of this particular film. But he had been workshopping this idea for like over a decade. And at first I think he thought it would probably be a TV series, but then he decided that he could actually make it five separate films. And so Lovers Rock is the second of those films. And Essentially Small Acts is a series that tells five different stories of these West Indian immigrants that are living in London, roughly from the years like 1960 to the 1980s. And a lot of it is based on real life events, like um every episode is kind of points to something that happened in real life, including, I think the last one does talk about school. And I think a lot of the stuff that you spoke about with Steve McQueen's school experience is actually in that episode. So that's really interesting. And so the interesting thing about telling the stories of West Indian immigrants is that, you know, Steve McQueen himself is of Grenadian and Trinidadian descent. So this actually feels very personal It feels personal, at least from my eyes, that, you know, he would make this. And a brief synopsis of Lover's Rock is that it takes place in an entire night at this house party in South London where a West Indian woman is celebrating a birthday and... A sound system, which is called Mercury Sound, performs in the living room. And the entire movie is basically about this one night of the party and the guests of the party, including this woman named Martha, who's played by an actress named Amara J. St. Aubin. She arrives to the party with her friend and eventually meets and connects with this man named Franklin, who is played by Michael Ward. Now, I love... Movies that happen all in one night, or like in one event. You know how you have those movies that come out that are just like one entire night. Yes, because um, I love the pacing of it, and and also just like the idea of how the time is contained, and then you get to see like kind of what happens, knowing that that's what's going on. That there's a finite amount of time for this film, and I gotta tell you, I'm not sure if it's because we've been in quarantine for so long, but man, this movie made me really emotional. Like, yeah, I'm not ashamed to say that I cried at a certain point when
1: I was watching this movie. Oh, yeah. I'm almost embarrassed to admit. Actually, I'm not. I'm not embarrassed. I wept openly and said out loud in my apartment alone, I just want to go outside. Yes, yes. I just cried. I just couldn't. (laughs) I'm like, I just want to go outside and see my (laughs) friend. Yes, it...
0: Made me miss parties and music and dancing. It made me miss being a DJ because I used to be a DJ and having like little crushes or like party romances. I mean, it was like Lover's Rock is seriously one of the most sensory movies I think I've ever seen in my life.
1: Yes. Oh, I'm so happy you said that. (laughs) Yeah, it perfectly captures...
0: These tiny moments of both of going to a party, but being at a party, uh, being the doorman at a party. I mean, whatever function you have within the party, you are represented. OK, and just the whole like anticipation of of before of like people cooking for the party what you're gonna wear how you're gonna do your hair you know like what happens when you walk up and there's a door guy and he's asking for money you when you walk into the party and you're scoping it out the dancing the sweating and like meeting people even with like the moments when you like are like i gotta go outside and get some air like smoke a cigarette like that whole part of a party i'm just like this movie was probably about as close to a replacement for real life as I've experienced in the year that we've been under
1: lockdown, right? Absolutely. Oh, there's so many moments like that in this movie where I just feel like it's so it's so visceral. And again, McQueen does that so well, but there's this one part where they're like getting ready and they're setting up the sound system and they bite the the wires like they're splicing the cables. Yep. And I cannot tell you how many times we did that in the eighties, like just to that's what you did to like connect your speaker to your fucking equalizer or whatever. And it was weird because it's like, Oh, we knew things back then because we had to like necessity. Isn't the mother of invention. Poverty is the mother of invention. So I just love those moments.
0: Love it. Love it. Love it. And I mean, there's just so many different kinds of experiences going on there. First of all, I think a lot of people point to just like the dancing sequences, because there are sequences of couples who are dancing together at this party that are so sexy and so sensual, it will drive you insane. Like if you're by yourself under lockdown, you're going like, oh, my God, remember what it was like to like touch other people (laughs) like I'm going to fucking freak out right now. The one the one scene I think that really shows this the best is the one with silly games which is the janet Kay song that's playing in the movie it's like people are dancing it's so romantic and then the song goes off and people are still singing it and i just i this was one of the moments where i cried i actually cried when that was happening same
1: because you could hear people's feet moving on the floor, like that quiet shush of people dancing and their clothes and everyone singing. And you get the it, it was just that feeling of like they do this so often. They party so well that they know this. Like, that, that, like it's just intrinsic to who they are when they're together. And it was a togetherness I've never seen. And it was sexy and it was fun and cool. Oh, God, I love that scene so much. It's probably one of the best scenes I've seen in, in a film like, in years.
0: Yeah. There's just so much going on. I mean, it's, like, there's another scene, too. Towards the end, it's a big sequence of the movie where basically, like, the guests are out on the dance floor. This is towards the end of the night. The DJs are playing this, like, dub track, and there's this kind of catharsis happening where everybody is screaming and sweating and taking their shirts off and then demanding that the DJ rewind the track, and it's just this, like, spectacular, emotional moment and it just it just made me miss I mean this is like it just made me miss those types of evenings kind of both like attending them and also having been a DJ that sort of end of the night thing that happens when like people are just like drunk and then just really feeling it and then it just kind of turns into you know this big emotional like kind of outburst type of thing and I mean, and there's in this movie, there are political implications to that that I'll talk about in just a second. But like, I don't know if I've actually talked about being a DJ on this podcast no, before. Maybe I was going to
1: you should tell people. <laughs> yeah. So no,
0: I so I in a former life I used to be a DJ, and I actually used to DJ a lot of like ska and rock steady and like early reggae music. Now, I was definitely not Mercury Sound. I did not do anything <laughs> as cool as Mercury Sound. But for me, that whole part of the movie was my, almost my favorite part of the movie besides the romance, because it kind of digs into, and this is obviously a testament to Steve McQueen and the people that he's talking about, but it kind of dug into this whole, like, like there's basically a sound system tradition in Jamaican music of like these mobile setups and the dub plates and the DJ and the selector, the selector is the person that pulls the records. The DJ is the person that like talks or, toasts or whatever over the music. And it's been around in Jamaica since the 40s. And like the term lovers rock, it was like a style of reggae that was really popular in London in like the 70s, which was basically reggae that was sort of more uh, love song oriented versus like political, like a lot of, you know, reggae at that time was pretty political. Lovers rock to me just kind of sounds like rock study, but influenced by sort of like American soul and R&B music. But it had it had a female bent to it. So basically both in audience, but also in the artist, which is why that Janet Kay song plays so prominently in the movie. And there's also a character in the movie. He's an older man that kind of pops up a few times. And and that guy is this guy named Dennis Bovell, And he was a pioneer of lovers rock. And he did the music for Babylon, which is this like 80s movie about the sound system culture in London. So it's kind of, I think he picked the music for the movie, this movie as well. Um, It's pretty amazing. But that moment, there was like this tiny moment that happened in the movie where like Franklin asked Martha if she's like a rude
1: girl. Are you a rude girl or a soul head? Yeah, it's (laughs) it's like basically
0: like, are you into Ska or are you into Northern Soul? And she basically said she's into Lover's Rock. I was just like, oh, that's so cute. That's such a cute little moment. But like, I, God, I just, the thing about it too, though, is that even though there's like all this like incredible romantic sensual great amazing musical stuff happening there's also things that are happening at the same time that are like really scary and violent like there's a sexual assault at the party which martha happens to interrupt and she actually saves the woman who's being assaulted and Then at some point in the film, Martha herself, she goes off to try to find her friend that left the party. You know, her friend is upset that she kind of that Martha kind of went off with Franklin and her friend goes home. So Martha goes outside and tries to look for her. And there's these kind of these like these white guys that are kind of sitting outside of the party. They're harassing people walking by. And it reminds you that this party, this energy, the joy that's happening is happening inside of this white world. Right. You know what I mean like this is like a, a a space for them, but if the the minute they leave it it's like back to reality
1: and that danger is always right there yes they don't have to go far to experience that kind of danger they have to leave the fr- go out of the front door
0: yeah, exactly so I think that's ultimately what I think the last scene that sort of catharsis moment is about, which is that it's kind of the cements who these people are in a way it's like there's this group of people they're Immigrants these like West Indian or Caribbean people who are living in South London, they're unified. They're trying to live their lives and like retain their culture and music and and food and their heritage. And that, I think ultimately is what is so interesting and compelling about this movie and with small acts. And that's the thing about Steve McQueen is that I love that he kind of chose to highlight them and this period of time because I think I think a lot of Americans certainly don't know this about England. They don't know the influx of West Indian immigrants that came into England, you know, around like the Commonwealth, the, the the Caribbean countries that were in the Commonwealth. I don't think a lot of Americans really kind of know about all that. So I just think it's so fascinating for him to have done something like this, to, to do this series, but ultimately the Lovers Rock, which is just such a such a great movie. I just love it so much.
1: It is incredible. I feel like, um, I am 100% Patty, the friend that leaves, uh, Patty. <laughs> I wouldn't have seen half of that shit. I'd be like, you know what? You're cool. I'm out. Call me if you need me. But I just love so much. There's these, these little tiny things in the movie that two in particular, that were very, very interesting to me and talking about that lineage of, you know, that Jamaican and Caribbean lineage and West Indian line- lineage in London. When Franklin and Martha are talking on the couch at one point, the same conversation where he asks her if she's a a rude girl or a soul head. And he's like, you know, where are you from? Like, what's your family name? And she's like, what about you? What's your family name? And he says, Cooper. And she says, we don't have any Cooper in my family. So it's almost like they're checking each other out to see if they're connected somehow or like related. And like you realize, holy shit, like these are... This is a group of people who have come from a place where they have experienced, you know, smaller communities and lives. And it's entirely possible that there is some crossover in their families. Yeah. Even in London. So that was just a small sentence. Like it's just a couple of sentences that just were saying so much more than that, um, which again, McQueen awesome at that he excels at that and then there's another thing that I, I i kept noticing throughout the film where usually when when people use terms like code switching they're talking about like you know for example like as a black person i can talk to my friends one way but i talk to my boss another way right but there was an intense code switching going on here and i'm going to speak with the language and the words and the terms and the slang of my West Indian, Caribbean, Jamaican lineage. Or then when they're speaking to, you know, to other people, it was very pointedly like upscale British accent.
0: (laughs) Of course. I mean, that, that I think is, is typical of immigrants. I think that that, you know, to be able to speak your kind of patois to the people that are of your own heritage, but then knowing that when you go to work, when when Franklin had to go talk to his boss mm-hmm. at the um, car repair place, I think that's where he was working, he had to change who he was for that right. guy. His reality is that when he's at the party, he's this, you know, hot stud that's, you know, s- standing around and all the women want to talk to him. But then he has to go into his real life where he's basically like taking orders from a white man and he's the the black labor. You know what I mean? It's interesting.
1: Yeah. I love that. I loved again, like just those little tiny moves are just so just make this so heartfelt. And so it it, it filled me with longing. I got to say it really did. There are a lot of parts of this that made me miss parties um, and particular, but mostly made me miss friends and connecting with people and that spark that you get from talking to a stranger or doing something out of your comfort zone or like, you know, just those little beats. Um, I also really loved there's a a guy that shows up at the party that also made me realize how much I don't miss parties because there's definitely a point where I'm like, (laughs) oh yeah, these people also exist at these parties. And he's like doing what I what I've been calling in my notes um, a grief skank. Like, he's just, like, dancing around in grief. and like The grief skink, The grief skank. The grief skank. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. Because it's not dancing, but it's yeah. not not dancing. That's right. But he just made me, like, again, but those characters and those people being there reminds you that, you know, it just reminds you of the beauty of being a part of this world where you don't get to choose who you're around. Like, we've been yeah. choosing who we've been around for the last year. And that's not the world, you know. (laughs) Like the world is messier.
0: Absolutely, you're so right about that. Because as like I remember being so many nights as being a DJ, I you know, I for many years I DJed at this gay bar named Mary's in Atlanta, and I was like typically the last one out. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I would DJ until like maybe three o'clock in the morning, and it is so interesting to observe. The things that happen at the beginning of the night and then at the end of the night and who's left at the end of the night who's been smoking weed all night long and having and drinking red Red stripe and and being fucking completely wasted and then they just kind of like let go and they just yeah Mm -hmm. they do their grief skank they do (laughs) their like they let out that like. You know, whatever it is that's inside them, whatever they expel is so interesting, because when you walk into the party, it's like everybody's making sure that their clothes are real fit and real good. And, they, mm-hmm. you know, they're patting down their their jackets and making sure that they're looking right. But that shit goes out the window at the end <laughs> of the night, like when, at, at the end of the night, if you're like the last people standing, you don't give a fuck about any of that. You're just like, forget it.
1: I want to know, like, what is do you have a night or an event of DJing that was just like such a good time or like your favorite party or just like a really good night of DJing? Like, what did that feel or look like?
0: I mean, like, on I, honestly, I, I did it for so long that there was just so many moments that stood out to me like there were just like weird. there would be like weird things that would happen just like random people that would show up like just like that guy like, <laughs> he would just show up randomly they would have their dance moment, and then they would just be gone um but you know usually like the best nights honestly are the nights that are like a thursday like a night where it's not like this big loaded expectations like you know the worst nights to DJ are like New Year's Eve, Saturday right. nights. Like those are like the kind of amateur hour type of nights. The best right. nights are like when it's like a Thursday, people are just chilling and then it just, the event just kind of turns into something. That's the most fascinating. But those are, those are my favorite nights. I, I will always pick a, a Wednesday or a Thursday night to a Friday or Saturday, any day. I love
1: absolutely. it. absolutely, And that is what this movie also gave me is that anything could happen feeling like, yes, we're at this party that's organized, but anything could happen. And that is, man, that's something you can't cultivate. You have to just go with the flow to have those moments.
0: Yeah. I just, I can't stress to you enough how much I enjoy this movie. I, I think it's a testament to Steve McQueen as a filmmaker. I think that it came at literally the right time. Yes. Like everybody should be watching this movie and not because I want you to be like, horribly depressed for like the life that we could be living if it hadn't been for COVID-19. But I'm just saying that like, if you want to experience pure joy, if you want to experience like the moments that we're missing, if you need and in lieu of for that watch lovers rock, I'm telling you, it is so great.
1: Could not agree more. So glad you picked this.
0: Oh God. All right. Now I've had my moment. I feel like crying again. I know. I'm like, I'm gonna watch this again and again and again. I know. And it's short. It's like an hour and something. I'm like, it's dude, an hour this and is ten minutes. Perfect movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> and he packs a lot into that hour and ten minutes. I love a 75-minute, 70-minute movie. It's so fun. Listen, I'm so glad that we chose Steve McQueen for this episode. The real king of cool, as we've obviously proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. Um, but I have to ask you, as I do every week. What are the movies
1: for next week's episode? Next week, it's going to be a riot. Because <laughs> our movies, <laughs> I can already tell, our movies, and you have to guess the theme. And the theme is obviously
0: Black History Month, and, but you have to guess another theme.
1: Exactly. And our films are I'm Gonna Get You sucker from 1988. And don't be a menace to South Central when you're drinking your juice in the hood from 1996. Yes. The. (laughs) Do you want to tell, tell people where they can guess and shoot us messages and participate in our fucking pod? Yes.
0: (laughs) Our social media accounts for both Instagram and Twitter are I saw pod. Our email address is I saw what you did pod at gmail.com Feel free to tweet at us, to tag us and stuff. We love everybody who's been writing to us and, you know, just kind of sending us messages. Um, It's been so great hearing from you. Honestly, you guys are so fucking nice. It's
1: kind of unbearable. I love it so much. We love hearing from you. And we also love when you when you review and rate the show. It helps more than you know. And again, everyone has just been so kind and thoughtful. And we just love. Love when you're so nice to us
0: Yeah my, apparently my mom is reading Those iTunes <gasps> reviews which is horrifying But she's I'm doing sorry.
1: it I'm <laughs> sorry what
0: Oh yeah she she will like, frequently Pull out her phone and be like Oh do you want to read a review of the podcast I'm like could you not right now this is too weird
1: Mom I, no
0: I don't even know if she knows what a podcast is So I'm <laughs> actually kind of I'm like really impressed that she Even has the app I'm like good <laughs> for you like you navigated your phone and now you're reading a review and I said, but I can't take it. Cause you're in my world. I'm just trying to watch shame in the back bedroom. Oh, God. Please don't read anything else to me.
1: <laughs> don't read them to me. Like mom, you haven't been on these internet streets for the past 10, 20 years. Like I have, we don't need to read those. Don't read comments. Like I, I have to teach them the basics of the
0: internet, but anyway, it, In spite of all that, we love the niceness of our listeners and everybody that's taken their time to, you know, talk to us. So thank you so much. And until next week. See you guys there. See you later.
1: This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Lauren Elizabeth Brown. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our social media assistant is Taryn Mazza. Our theme songs by Tom Bryfogle. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at I Saw Pod. And as always, please listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.